Amen. New Life East, you can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, if you're new here, it's your first or second time. My name is Rory. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad that you've joined us. Hopefully you'll stop by Connect Central on your way out today so we can just say hello, give you a gift, and say thank you for being a part of a weekend here at New Life East. Uh, over this summer, what we've been doing as a church is sort of teaching through a series of conversations on what it means to be a part of the church, what it looks like for us to be the church. And we spent the first three weeks of this series talking about, you know, some of the things that happen in the four walls of a church, what happens uh, on the inside on a Sunday. We talked about what it looks like to sing, what worship is all about, why we take communion together. And then you may have noticed last week we sort of turned that conversation external. So we're not talking about just what happens in the four walls of a church, but we're talking about what it looks like for the church, meaning you and me, when we go outside of the four walls. What does it look like for us to sort of live and breathe and be the church, as you would say? And what Pastor Andrew has said is that the church serves as a sign of the coming kingdom, meaning what we get to be, and, and I think this is a beautiful picture, is we get to be a picture to the world of what the one day you know, ongoing eternal reign of Jesus will look like in all of the earth, in our lives personally, and in all of society. I heard a story not long ago about a great evangelist named Raymond Fung. If you're a church history buff, nerd, whatever, you might know that name. If you're a normal person, you're like, okay, just get on with the story. His name was Raymond Fung, and he was an evangelist in the city of Hong Kong. And one day, Mr. Fung was having a conversation with a textile worker sitting across the table from him. They were talking about life and faith and things going on in his world. And, and Mr. Fung was trying to get him to go to church with him. He was like, listen, man, hearing the stuff you're talking about, I think it would be great if you came to church with me on a Sunday. And the way that this textile worker's job was set up for him to go to church to make that decision meant that what he had to do was give up an entire day's wage on a Sunday to do it. Long story short, the textile worker reaches out to Raymond. He says, hey, I'm going to come to church with you. And Raymond is ecstatic. He's excited about it. They go to church, and the pastor that day preaches a fiery message, right? Not quite hellfire and brimstone, but pretty close. And this textile worker meets up with Raymond after church, and Raymond says, man, what did you think? And he said, man, that was a really, really convicting message. He said, man, the things that that pastor said were true. Raymond's like, man, tell me what that means. He says, man, when he, you know, talked about the places in my life where I'm lazy and apathetic, the places in my life where I just sort of give in to cheap entertainment, the places of, of sin and brokenness in my life. He goes, man, he was spot on. And Raymond, who's an evangelist, starts getting excited, right? He's like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close the deal on this guy. I already got him to church. He didn't know why he came, but he came and it went well. That's some of, for some of you, that's how you became a Christian. You just got coerced into going to church one Sunday. And he says, he says man, I, I was so moved by this message he says, I got one question. Raymond goes, man, anything you want to ask. He goes, can you tell me why the preacher didn't talk about my horrible boss? Maybe you've thought that on a Sunday. Raymond goes, what do you, what do you mean? He goes, well, my boss was in the room. So were a bunch of the other managers. He said he didn't have anything to say about the unethical work practices that they use to make money. He said he didn't talk about at all about the way that he used child slave labor to make his products. 
He said he didn't, you guys didn't talk anything about the way that he forces us to work unpaid overtime, the way he lies on his labels to make more money. He, you didn't say anything. You had a lot to say about people like me, but you didn't seem to have much to say to people like them. And Raymond's sort of taken back by it, and he stops for a second, and he realizes to himself, because, you know, almost every weekend, people of the managerial class and the owners and the CEOs of these companies sat in that church service, and never once did the pastor ever have anything to say to them. That textile worker looks across the table at Raymond, and he says, listen, today I became aware that I am truly a sinner who is in need of God, but I cannot be a part of a church that cannot see the sins and the brokenness of those who hold power in my world. And that day, that man got up and never went back to church again. It's an interesting story, right? It's a true story, but it's interesting to think about it in our context now. I can't tell you the amount of conversations I have with people who say similar things. You know, I recognize that Jesus is good, and I really like Jesus. I find him fascinating. But what's What's difficult for many people is what they see the church doing is really having strong opinions about the individual lives of people, but having very little to say about the way the church is meant to exist in society, the way that the church is meant to move and breathe and live in a way that benefits the world around us. And the question that I want to ask today, I want us to openly just sort of wrestle with together is what is the church's role in speaking truth to power? What is the church's role in speaking truth to power? Which is really a question of what is the church's role in society? In a in maybe more straightforward way, what is the church's role in engaging politically with the world in which we live? And I know some of you just heard the word politically and you're either ready to run away from this room or check out. Because I know some of you, you, you left churches and you were hurt by churches who politics seemed to be the most important thing on the front of their mind. Some of you left churches because they never talked about politics at all. They never talked about how the church is meant to engage with society. And what I want to do is have that conversation, but I just want to be clear on some things. Here's what I'm not interested in doing today. I am not going to tell you if I thought Jesus was a Republican or a Democrat, because he probably wasn't. I'm not here to tell you how to think about the most hot-button social issues that present themselves to us today, mostly because if we did that, this sermon would change what feels like every 48 hours. There's something new that pops up on our, our news channel, on our news feed all the time. There's something new going on that we all feel the need to have an opinion on. So I'm not here to tell you that. I'm, I'm not here to sway your political leanings. I'm not here to do that at all. What I want to do is engage in a conversation about what the church's role is in speaking truth to power and as we engage in society. So I'm going to give you like my thesis statement up front. I don't normally like preaching this way, but for the sake of clarity, this was what we're going to do. Here's what I want to propose to you today, that the church's role in speaking truth to power is to be a prophetic voice that is neither right, left, or religious, but is faithful to the way of Jesus. I'm going to say it again so no one can misquote me. The church's role in speaking truth to power is to be a prophetic voice that is neither right, left, nor religious, but is faithful to the way of Jesus. I just want to say, Andrew Arndt, our lead pastor, is on vacation. I'm so thankful that this was the message he decided to leave with me. So if, if I say something that offends you, if I say something that offends you, I'd love it if you sent me an email at andrewarndt at newlifechurch.org. Oh, I'm kidding. Here's the deal. I, re I do recognize the tumultuous nature of a conversation like this. And so what I want to do in this moment is simply pray 
invite the spirit into this space, and then we'll dive right in. Sound good? Father God, what we are thankful for is that we sit shoulder to shoulder with people that we call family right now. And that sometimes family conversations can be difficult and challenging. They can challenge our worldview. They can challenge our perspective. But Jesus, in this family, we want to keep our eyes on you. And we want to walk towards you. And so what we do in this moment is we sit open-handed with all of our preconceived notions about the world. With all our preconceived notions about who you are. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would speak to us, that we would have ears to hear the good news of the gospel and what it means for us as a church and society. God, I ask you personally that you would give me words that fill us with hope, not cynicism, not pessimism, not frustration, but with a sense of hope towards the coming kingdom and the future of humanity because of who you are and what you have done in the world. So we ask all of this in faith, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. So let's start here. What does it mean to have a prophetic voice? If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. That's where we're going to start. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. The screen will have the verses up there for you. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 22. If, if you're unfamiliar with who Jeremiah is, Jeremiah was a priest in the country of Judah. And what happens is God comes to Jeremiah at one point and he says, Jeremiah, here's what you are going to do with the rest of your life. You are going to go speak truth to the religious and political leaders of your day. And you are going to challenge the places that they have stepped out of line with the will of God. And you are going to encourage them to step back in line to the will of God. You are going to do this with a prophetic voice. This is why we know Jeremiah as one of the prophets. And maybe you grew up in a church that was highly charismatic, and so the idea of, of prophecy or someone doing that is a little bit off-putting. What you think of is that weird person in the congregation who'd come over to you and be like, I have a word from the Lord, and you're like, no, you don't. And they would come over and tell you something, and then they would just sort of walk away, and that would be the end of it, and you were left to sort of validate or invalidate it. What's interesting about the life of Jeremiah and what we understand about him from Scripture is Jeremiah follows this sort of mission, this calling from God to have a prophetic voice for 20-some years, which means to have a prophetic voice is not what we're talking about when someone walks across the room, gives you a word, and then leaves. To have a prophetic voice is also not to take five minutes to write a political statement on your Twitter feed. And let everyone know what you think about this newest issue that's going on. To have a prophetic voice means that when you choose to use your voice, when the church chooses to use it, we are making a commitment to be faithful to what we're saying, to follow in the way in which God is going, to see what Jeremiah got put in. Jeremiah 22, it says, This is what the Lord says. Go down to the palace of the king of Judah and proclaim this message there. So this is what Jeremiah is supposed to say. Hear the word of the Lord to you, King of Judah, you who sit on David's throne, you, your officials, and your people who come through these gates. Jeremiah is talking to everybody. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you're careful to carry out these commands, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this palace, riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by their officials and their people. But if you do not obey these commands, 
declares the Lord. I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. What does Jeremiah do? Well, he follows the Lord's orders. He goes to the place of power. He stands before them and he says, listen, stop doing these things. These things that are oppressing people, the things that are causing violence to people, the things that are essentially deteriorating society from the inside out. And what Jeremiah implies is, one, these things are actively happening in Judah. These things are going on. So when he says stop doing it, it's not a preemptive warning. It's a, this is happening, chill it out. He also says to them, if you don't chill it out, if you don't stop what's going on here, the places of power, the thrones that you sit on and you rule with an iron fist are actually going to crumble and to deteriorate. Your form of leadership and power will lose its very power. And most of us can sort of get on board with that idea of being prophetic with our voice, is being the person who tells people who disagree with you or who are wrong what is actually true. But Jeremiah doesn't just look at them and say, if you don't get this right, things are going to go bad. Notice what he actually says. He says, if you don't get these things right, things will go bad. But if you get these things right, things actually have the potential to get better. What's the imagery that he uses? He says, if you begin to sort of shift society, you will find that kings and their officials will ride through your gates on horses and in chariots. The picture that Jeremiah paints here is in the ancient Middle East, the times when someone would ride through the city on chariots and on horses was during wartime, and they did it when they came back from war. It was a sign that they had been victorious, that their people were safe, that this community, this city could now thrive. So what is Jeremiah saying? He's saying, if you get these things right, what's going to happen is everyone is actually going to thrive and flourish. And here's why that's important. Ultimately, the goal of using a prophetic voice or speaking prophetically into society is to help all of humanity flourish and thrive, and New Life East, the key word there is all. Not just the people who look like us. Not just the people who vote like us. Not just the people who think like us. Can I challenge you? Not even the people who believe like us. The goal of using a prophetic voice to speak truth to power is that all of humanity would begin to thrive and flourish because that is a glimpse of what the coming kingdom of God will look like. There will be no more sadness, no more pain, no more suffering. What we do in that moment is we begin to build and show the world what the kingdom looks like. This is the goal of using a prophetic voice to actually say and recognize when things are not going as they should. But you know what's really interesting about this? Um, Choosing to use a prophetic voice is not exactly like a cushy job. Jeremiah, when he chooses to speak truth to power, do you know where he ends up? In the stocks, in the middle of the city, to be laughed at and embarrassed. Because I don't know if you know this, but politicians, um, they don't love when you tell them that they're wrong. Judges don't love when you look at them and say, hey, that verdict is incorrect. Leaders don't love when you look at them and say, you're actually not leading in an ethical and good way. They don't tend to respond with, thank you so much. They tend to put people in the stocks. And what that means for you and I, quite literally, 
is if we use a prophetic voice, we will often find ourselves without any clear political home. We will often find ourselves feeling like we don't line up with this group and we don't line up with that group. And believe it or not, I think when we find that moment is actually when Jesus can do the most transformative work in the way that we infiltrate and work with society. Because it's not, just, it's not enough to just use a prophetic voice. What it means for the church to speak truth to power is to be a prophetic voice that is neither left, right, nor religious. What do I mean by that? Well, you know this if over the last two or three years you've sat at a family dinner and before you know it, half of the table has left the building. If at Thanksgiving you started what was a normal conversation and then there was fighting and the turkey ended up against the wall. Because now more than ever, we live in a polarized society. If you think this, it means you're against this. If you think this, it means you're against this. And believe it or not, Jesus himself found himself in that exact spot. Because there were two competing parties when Jesus was around. It's hard to sort of overlay our situation right on top of it, but I think we can do somewhat of a good job. The first group that I think of was a group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees was this group of political and religious influencers who they found themselves in the urban center of the city. They were part of the higher class. They had been around for a long time. They, um, there's documentation that the way the Sadducees sort of attempted to accomplish their ends is they sort of abandoned the messianic hope of Jerusalem and of the Jews. And what they did was they began to sort of covertly go in and out and around and try to coerce people and, and leaders to sort of go where they wanted. But what was good about the Sadducees, I would say this was a high quality, is that they had a mind and an eye for the justice issues of their day. They were very aware, they were keenly aware of the problems that widows faced. They were keenly aware of the issues that an outsider faced as they came among the people. I, I think we see this in one moment in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18, there's this moment where Jesus has a conversation with them. It says, then the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. Now this is important. The Sadducees because they abandoned the messianic view, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. And as the old Christian joke go, we called them Sadducees because they were sad, you see. If you're new to church and you're like, that's not funny, welcome to church. This is how it goes. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, what is he talking about here? There's this beautiful law that gets implemented in the Mosaic law. God sort of makes a, um, a, a, a back door for marriages when, when someone dies, when the significant other dies, that a woman is not left just on her own to figure out how to make it through the world. Her brother is actually able to marry her if no children had been born at this point. And the reason this is beautiful is what it does is it protects the well-being of a woman who in the ancient Middle East a single woman didn't hold a ton of value. In the ancient Middle East, a single woman was left sort of to the, the powers that be. It was a difficult spot. So God has put this sort of law, this ordinance there that allows a woman to not be left on her own and completely abandoned. It says this in, in the way the Sadducees ask maybe what is the largest hypothetical question of all time. 
Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. To which you can only feel bad for this woman. Worst luck ever. They then ask at the resurrection, which they don't believe in, mind you, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Now recognize the goodness that is happening here. It's a hypothetical question, but it is a question about what happens to a widow. What happens to the single woman who is left to her own devices? They're asking about the resurrection. It's hypothetical. They, they don't really believe in this, but they're asking a question about the well-being of someone's life, which is a valid question and concern. But Jesus has some really interesting things to say to them. Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Which if I was in that group would have just walked away at that point. It's like, I can't take this. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven, which they also didn't believe in. Now about the dead rising, which they also didn't believe in. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. What does Jesus do here in this moment? He's talking to this political and religious group that is in factuated, occupied with the social well-being of something. But what Jesus looks at them and says is, because you have abandoned the messianic promise, you actually only see this as a social justice issue. You don't see this with eternity in mind. What does he say to them? You have actually lost track of the power of God himself. Self. Jesus doesn't chastise them for caring about this hypothetical woman. He chastises them for thinking that God is not still in control. Jesus looks at the Sadducees and says, you have a limited scope of what is going on in the world. But when Jesus says this, he doesn't sort of run to another camp. The other camp that comes to mind is the Pharisees, if you grew up in church, you've heard of the Pharisees, even if you've only been around a church for a short time. The Pharisees and Jesus were almost always duking it out. The Pharisees were this small town, sort of homegrown movement. They represented sort of the rural communities. They were on the outskirts. They weren't in the urban center. They were good folks, kind folks. One of the things that marked the Pharisees is they had a high view of the Torah the Torah was the Bible of their day. So they read the laws of Moses over and over again. They read them. Their kids read them. They metaphorically made sure that those scriptures were written on their hearts. But what's interesting about Jesus every time he encounters the Pharisees is he almost always has something to challenge them with the way they're attempting to live out those morals and ethics and those laws that have such a high value. I think of this moment in John chapter 5. He looks at them and he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is saying you've worshipped a book and you've missed the Savior that the story is about. He says, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. And hear this, I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. Ouch. I wonder if they would have looked at him and said, yeah, 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 but we memorized all the rules. 
yeah, 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 but we know what is morally right and wrong. And Jesus says, yeah, but you've missed the most important thing. Jesus came face to face with this at one point, but it wasn't at his detriment. It was at the detriment of another woman. In John chapter 8, some of you know this, Jesus is in the temple courts and the Pharisees bring into him a woman who has been caught in adultery. Mind you, they didn't bring the guy. They just brought the woman. And it says this, that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, pretty humiliating, and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Recognize what happens in this moment. These guys who have the moral and ethical understanding more than anyone in the community, what they have done is brought in a woman that they have caught in adultery. So mind you, she probably has very few clothes on in this moment. Put her in front of everyone in this humiliating act. Looked at Jesus looked at God in the eyes and said, are you going to throw a rock at her or not? Jesus, every time he encountered the Pharisees, he looked at them and said, you have become so aware of the moral and ethical implications, but you have left out every ounce of love that you could have. Jesus, much like us, found himself standing between these two poles. Either I care about the social issues of the day, but I have no high view of God, or I have a high view of God and I disregard every social issue. But what's interesting in our world, do you know what most of us do now? We go, well, if that's not right and that's not right, I guess I'm just going to kind of check out. I'll become apathetic. I'll just ignore what's going on in society. I'll take every news feed off of my phone. I won't pay attention to anything. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus also doesn't just sort of go, well, let's just focus on God and everything will be okay. Jesus is neither identifying with the left nor the right, nor does he just stand in a religious posture. He's not just a religious pundit that people can sort of jerk around and do whatever they want to do with him, pull him from right to left whenever they feel like it's the most comfortable. What Jesus does is something interesting because constantly what he is doing as he is teaching people, as he's healing people, is he's revealing to us that Christianity is not in fact a religion. It is an entire way of life. Here's what I would say to you is that Christianity is not a religion. It's a way of living, which naturally makes it a politic. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Christianity forces us to ask questions about how we live and how we move in society. What are we supposed to do with our money and our resources? What are we supposed to do and think about the outsider that is among us? What are we supposed to do and think with the power that we have? How are we supposed to treat the people whom hate us and whom we hate? And what is the best way to treat the people that we love and dearly love? What Christianity is doing is it's not just setting up a bunch of religious rules. What it is doing is forcing us to go, this is a way of living. Christianity answers those questions. Think about your money and your resources for a second. The Christian view of what you do with your money and your resources starts with the belief that everything you have is not yours, it's whose which means that we are not meant to sort of wring every penny out of every dollar that we have. We're not supposed to use it to wound and oppress others. We're not to use it to 
to become more powerful, what we're actually supposed to do with it is constantly be asking our question, how do I steward this so that the kingdom of God is brought closer through my resources? Christianity is not just a religion. It's a way of life. And Jesus knows this, so he doesn't take the religious route and become apathetic and just hide himself in a temple. He continues to engage with the world. But what Jesus does as he engages with the world is the greatest challenge for you and I. Because what he does is counterintuitive to everything that we believe about how you move through society. I think of what happens in a moment in John chapter 13. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. We know this is getting ready to come because we've read the story. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, and he enters into a conversation with one of his disciples by the name of Peter. And if you want to do something fun someday, sit down in your Bible and look at all the conversations that Jesus has with Peter, because Peter at one point gets called what? The rock of the church. So in many cases, there are moments when Jesus is having conversations with Peter that sort of serve as a meta conversation about what the church still wrestles with today. Jesus is having a conversation with Peter in verse 31, John 13. It says, when he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Jesus then turning to his disciples, he said, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. Stop there for a second. Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't come. Let's, let's use as simple terms as we can. Jesus is about to disappear. What we know is going to happen is he's going to send the Spirit. So he's not actually going to disappear. So what is Jesus implying here? Well, as he's talking to Peter, I think what he's implying is that they now at this point know that Jesus will be the Savior of the world. I think Jesus is forcing them to wrestle with and reconcile with the reality that even though they know he is their Savior... After he leaves and is no longer visible, even his closest friends will continue to look for something to save them. They will continue to look to the powers that be to be their great rescuer. They will continue to look at resources and wealth as their rescuer. This has been the thing that's crippled the church for a long time. He says, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another doesn't get much more straightforward than that. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. He says, not if you watch CNN, not if you watch Fox, not if you vote Republican or Democrat, not if you have the hottest take on the most recent social upheaval. He doesn't say that. He says, the way that people will know you have aligned yourself with Jesus, the way that people will know that you are a part of the living church of Jesus is by the way in which you love people, which can feel cliche in a world that devalues it. It feels cliche to say that love is the way that will be recognized as we talk about politics and societal issues. Love is the way that you will be recognized. Simon Peter then asks him, Lord, where are you going? We know the answer. He's going to a cross to be crucified in the most brutal way possible. Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? It's an interesting question. 
Because how many times have you found yourself in church or at a Bible study or in a conversation, even just in your car on your own, and you'll go, Jesus, whatever you ask of me, I'll do it. And he says, why don't you love your neighbor who looks differently than you? And you're like, that's too far away. I can't. Jesus, send me somewhere shorter. Jesus, I'll do anything you ask of me. Jesus says, why don't you use your resources to better a family who's in need? Oh, Jesus, anything else. Jesus goes, would you, would you really lay down your life for me? In moments where society is fractured and crumbling, will you really lay down your life for me? And then he says to Peter, very truly, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. What is Jesus pointing out? That us laying our lives down for the kingdom of God and for the betterment of society will constantly be the most difficult thing for the church to do, but it is also the thing that the church chooses to do. What we do as we engage with society is we continue to live out the very reality of the cross, that the way the world is changed and transformed is not by us holding on to our freedom. It's not by us holding on to the benefits that we have. It's by us at every turn laying them down for the betterment of society. I think of the quote by the great Stanley Hauerwas, he says this, the cross is not a sign of the church's quiet, suffering submission to the powers that be, but rather the church's revolutionary participation in the victory of Christ over those powers. The cross is not a symbol for general human suffering and oppression. Rather, the cross is a sign of what happens when one takes God's account of reality more seriously than Caesar's. The cross stands as God's and our eternal no to the powers of death as well as God's eternal yes to humanity. The overriding political task of the church is to be the community of the cross. Ladies and gentlemen of New Life East, would you stand? To be the people of the cross means that what is required of us is to constantly surrender to the vision that Jesus has of society, which is not one that is divided, which is not one that is split by political parties, which is not one that is apathetic and quiet to the wrongs and the injustices of the world. It is not one that is harsh and brutal. It is one that is marked by self-sacrificial Love For many of us, what that means is that today we have the opportunity to lay down all of the places where we have not embodied that. We have an opportunity today to lay down all the moments where we have witnessed injustice and wrongs and we have just remained quiet. It means that we have the opportunity today to lay down our identity as someone who is on the right or on the left or apathetic and disconnected and say we are a part of the family of God, which means we are following Jesus where he takes us into society. It means that all the moments where we have chosen to be harsh and brutal and argumentative and hostile to people who see the world differently than us, who think differently than us, we have the ability to lay that down and surrender it to the son of the cross. So New Life East, I want to pray over you. Jesus, what we recognize in this moment, while this can be a difficult conversation to have, is that you are calling us to greater things. You are not calling us as the church to be silent in the midst of injustice and pain and wrong. 
You are not calling us to be apathetic, but you are calling us to be engaged with the world in which Jesus was. To have a prophetic voice, to challenge the assumed truths of the world and to say what Jesus has for us is better. To say that it doesn't matter where we identify on the political spectrum, that Jesus has an alternative way for us. And if we choose to walk that way, society will thrive and will flourish. It will not be torn to pieces. It will not be fractured into bits. We will see the world become better as we align ourselves with the vision of the kingdom. So Jesus, would you make this church a sign of that kingdom? A little picture of what the coming kingdom of God looks like. And as we do that, would you allow us to bow down in reverence to the only king, the only true leader, the only true ruler of it all, which is King Jesus himself. So Spirit, would you move us in these next few moments? We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. There was a moment when the lights went out Death claimed its victory. The king of love had given up his life. The darkest day in history. There on the cross they nailed for sinners. For every curse is blood is home. Final breath and it was finished, but not the end we could have known. For the earth began to shake, and the veil was torn. What sacrifice was made as the heavens roared?
scripture, when people encounter the presence of Jesus, their reaction is to fall on their face in fear. Jesus' reaction to them is what? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid when you're in the presence of Jesus. But what Jesus' presence does is it reveals to us about ourselves who we are. We have an opportunity in the presence of Jesus this morning to acknowledge what we have to confess, to let the light shine on our lives, to shine on our hearts and let it reveal places that we need to confess. So would you read this prayer with me this morning, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done, by what we have left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Scripture says that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. So I say to you this morning that you are forgiven. And this table is open to all who call on the name of the Lord. Would you hold the bread in your hand? The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread when he had given thanks. And we thank you, Jesus. He broke it. Would you break the body? And Jesus said, this is me coming into your world. This is me taking on flesh and dwelling among you. When you gather together like we're doing this morning, would you do this in remembrance of me? You can receive the bread. After supper, he took the cup in the same way, saying, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood. I have a new relationship with you. No longer do I look at your life. I don't weigh the rights against the wrongs. You don't have to slaughter an animal as a sacrifice for your sins. I look at you and I see the blood of my son and I see you forgiven, loved, and accepted. Jesus sees you as his son. Jesus sees you as his daughter. Would you drink this cup with thankfulness? Thank you, Jesus. We have one response and that is to worship. Would you lift your voice in doxology?
New Life East, would you open your hands to receive this benediction today? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and grant you his peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God's people said, amen. If you need someone to pray with you or just someone to talk with after this service, some of our altar ministry members will be along this back wall. We hope you guys have a great week, and we will see you next weekend.